You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, our audio supplement to the blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of Mesozoic life. I'm Nati, a drift of limestone dust. I'm an Odosaur's brain. And I am Dwayne the Rocks Johnson's skull cast of Stan. In episode 14, our first of 2022, dear listeners, I will be speaking later to illustrator Grias Dothis, who will be talking about their forthcoming book, Kaleidoscope of Dinosaurs and Prehistoric Life, as well as enlightening me about their chosen medium. Find out what that is. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art title this month is Dinosaurs and Other Archosaurs, written and illustrated by Peter Zallinger and published by Random House in 1986. But first, Niels, I believe you have quite the scoop for us. Uh, news of a new diplodocid straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Yes, well, um, it's a scoop, except all the Dutch media has covered it. <laughs> it's still a scoop, then. I mean, it's a scoop outside of the Netherlands. You know, obviously, obviously it's world famous in the Netherlands. Uh, yes, of course. Like, yeah, um... <laughs> it, was, it was all over the media. And, uh, like Franz Bauer. When it, <laughs> when it comes to that, I'm a bit of a Johnny-come-lately, but... Um, yeah, there is this uh, geology student called Tom, Tom van der Linden. He is doing his internship at Oertijd Museum Bokstel, which I have myself visited on a number of occasions. And uh, I've even interviewed the founder and director of the museum at one point. I'll uh, link the uh, interview into the show notes. But enough of that. This uh, Tom, this student, has made a rather startling discovery. Here's Tom himself giving you the scoop. I am talking to Tom van der Linden who is doing his internship at Oertijd Museum Bokstel. Uh, Tom. Hello. You are giving the task of identifying a specimen of sauropod dinosaur called Brusmeli. Tell me about who Brusmeli is and where he comes from. Yeah, Brusmeli is a diplodocid dinosaur uh, from the Morrison Formation of uh, Northern America. Uh, he or she was excavated in uh, 93. Uh, by a Swiss uh, paleontologist from the Saurian Museum in uh, Atal. Brusmeli was found alongside multiple other diplodocids, uh, a Camarasaurus uh, known as E.T. and a Big L2, uh, one of the more famous Allosaurus specimens. Yeah. So, uh, as the Oertijd Museum, uh, René Fraaien, the director of the Oertijd Museum, bought some of the uh, specimens. So the last three years preparation has been going on with all the volunteers here at the museum. Well, last year, so 2021, uh, uh, during my master's, um, I was given the task, as you said, to uh, try to identify the specimen because they have uh, been starting to uh, build up the skeleton for display in the, mu- in the museum. So you were tasked with identifying uh, Bruce Millie's identity. Of course, it was assumed to be a diplodocus. No, no, not really. <laughs> So, uh, based on pictures, which we sent to Emmanuel Job, Dr. Emmanuel Job, he's yeah. currently uh, at work at uh, in Hamburg. And he's the guy who made that massive paper sorting out all the diplodocids, right? Yeah, yeah, he's the, exactly. He was sent pictures uh, from half-prepared bones of Prismali, and he thought it was probably Barosaurus lentus. Right. So, my hypothesis was... Uh, Starting with the project, it's probably Barosaurus, and uh, hopefully we can go to species level, so Barosaurus lentus. Well, after my analysis, it turned out to be something else. All right, so it's it's an animal closely 
related to Barosaurus, but not quite the same? Yes, uh, it's still closest related to Barosaurus within the phylogenetic tree. I used the phylogenetic analysis of uh, Chopper Malpeus 2017, in which, the, in which they named Galliomopus papsi. And my animal was recovered in between Galliomopus and Barosaurus. Okay, that's really exciting. Yes. So if all goes well, perhaps you get to name a new dinosaur. How cool is that? Well, that's ob- obviously great. <laughs> that's what I've always wanted to do, working with dinosaurs. So, so hopefully this is the, the right step in, uh, in that direction. Well, that's, that's really exciting news, Tom. Uh, when can we look forward to the paper? Hopefully we have finished a manuscript somewhere uh, in the summer of 2022. And then obviously the peer review uh, starts. And depending on uh, how well we write it, we hope that at the end of this year it is uh, published. But you can never know for certain, because some of the other paleontologists might not agree with our arguments. Yes, of course. And whenever there's a new Morrison sauropod, right, you, you can almost predict the kind of responses you're going to get. Oh, another Morrison sauropod. We have so many. Aren't there too many? Aren't they oversplit? True, true. Uh, that's one of the problems, but we do know that the quarry in which Brusmany was found is quite old, so that helps. Uh, if you look at the blog from Darren Nash, he also states, and uh, you can see it, I think, also in multiple other publications, that uh, most of the Morrison sauropods are never found altogether. So you usually have just three or four species in one quarry at one stratigraphic age, which is right. also the case for Brusmody, which likely just lived alongside E.T., as I already said. But E.T. is also a really odd Camarasaurus specimen and might represent a new species of Camarasaurus. And some other diplodocid dinosaurs, which are also slightly different than, well, regular Diplodocus carnegie or Barosaurus lentus. Right. So we hope that by arguing both on morphology, on phylogeny, and on stratigraphic differences, that, well, we can get it published. So the mounting of your sauropod skeleton is almost done. When can we see it? Yeah, if the lockdown is lifted. In the Netherlands, then hopefully we can uh, all the visitors can see the Grusmeli in March. Then it uh, will hopefully be finished, and then we will replace uh, the replica, which is currently in the museum, with the 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 real specimen. Well, that's really exciting, Tom. Thank you very much. I wish you the best of luck, and uh, hopefully I will see you in March. Yes, see you. So yeah, that's, that's some uh, that's some sauropod news straight from the sauropod's mouth. Thank you, Niels. I think that segment alone has increased the quality of our podcast twofold. Um, Mark, well, more Thariophoran goodness this month, and this time in the form of an endocast. Yes, it's a paper that has been doing the rounds actually in, well, surprisingly, <laughs> it's been doing the rounds in quite a range of places, not just the usual suspects, but somehow it made it into the various sort of, um, you know, hated mainstream newspapers as well uh, but um a lot of people missing the points about it it's neuroanatomy of the nodosaurus truthiosaurus austriacus this is a paper published in nature scientific reports so it's open access array by um shada et al so the holotype of struthiosaurus this small nodosaur from austria hence the name or at least hence the specific name but yeah the holotype is just this basically like brain case 
and um, the researchers have taken this the Struthiosaurus holotype and they have micro CT scanned it and then uh, 3D printed various basically endocasts as you say inside the skull um, examined it and have come to some uh, interesting conclusions. The big sort of headline, uh, <laughs> sort of in the uh, in the wider media, seems to be that it was deaf. And it wasn't deaf. It did have quite poor hearing, um, although they say it was possibly superior to that of turtles. <laughs> but um, yeah, its right. hearing was quite poor. Uh, but more than that, they compare certain um, parts of its brain, basically the uh, outside of the ear canal, the, so the bony um, outside of the ear canal, the inner ear. They compare that with um, ankylosaur rids as well as stegosaurs, which obviously are thought to have a more active style of defense because they have weapons on the end of their tails. They would have to aim at any aggressors, whereas nodosaurs obviously don't have such weapons, but they do have much thicker osteoderms. Obviously, you know, classic nodosaur like Edmontonia is something with a, you know, (laughs) ridiculously enormous thick spike sticking out from its neck, quite limited mobility, but no tail club. None of them had tail clubs. And they were obviously, they appear to be ecologically differentiated as well. And this goes further to support that argument. Right. And this, this is a nodosaurid. So it's the other kind. This is um, actually specifically talking about the differences between nodosaurids and ankylosaurids. And in particular, how ankylosaurids seem to have um, the area of the brain dedicated to, um, to these motor controls, to neck movements, neck and head coordination. And also, uh, as I said, the, the bony surround of the ear they didn't have such a fine or well-developed sense of balance. They didn't have such well-developed coordination of, um, as I said, neck and head movements. The size and shape of various parts there basically indicates that they just didn't need that kind of fine coordination, which ties in with the idea that they would just have hunkered down against predators. They wouldn't... The other... So ankylosaurus, of course, have a club on the end of their tail Stegosaurs have spike tail, whereas nodosaurs don't have any of that stuff. Um, they, they didn't need to aim anything or they didn't have an active style of defense. They would have hunkered down to defend themselves. And it also further supports their um, ecological differentiation from ankylosaurids, which has already been established from their strata that they've been discovered in. So, you know, it's one thing to have the skeletal evidence that they did, didn't have the active weapons, but it's also, but this just further reinforces that idea of them hunkering down against predators rather than employing any kind of active defense um and yeah they didn't necessarily have very good hearing but they weren't deaf well that's fascinating thank you mark and finally uh this last news item has already received british national news coverage and a string of television and radio programs so who are we indeed to disdain following suit and its popularity is small wonder for the rutland sea dragon as the ichthyosaur fossil has been affectionately called is not only the largest most complete marine reptile skeleton ever found in the british isles in the over 200 years of their discovery and study but the most complete skeleton of any large prehistoric reptile uncovered in the United Kingdom, and that includes dinosaurs. Dated to between 182 and 181.5 million years old, 
The skeleton was found in the Jurassic clay of a drained lagoon at Rutland Water Nature Reserve when parts of its articulated vertebrae were first spotted by Joe Davis, conservation team leader at Leicestershire and Rutland Wildlife Trust during routine maintenance work back in February 2021. And there followed a chain of events that eventually culminated in the fossil's full excavation in August of that year by a team led by ichthyosaur specialist Dr. Dean Lomax and conservator Dr. Nigel Larkin, assisted by Dr. Mark Evans and Dr. Emma Nichols, among a host of others. The ichthyosaur is thought for the moment to most likely be Temnodontosaurus trigonodon, sister taxon to Temnodontosaurus crassimanus and measures some 10.5 meters long. The vertebral column is preserved in its entirety right down to the tip of its tail, where the vertebrae are about the size of a penny. It also preserves some fascinating taphonomic information and shows evidence of having been scavenged, possibly by other ichthyosaurs. If its genus and species are confirmed, this will also be the first of its members to be found in Britain and would extend the species' geographic range from France and Germany. And of course, I mustn't fail to mention that a beautiful reconstruction of the Rutland Sea Dragon by Bob Nichols accompanies this hugely significant and historic find. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's huge. It's massive. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And again, the the news coverage for this was just... Uh, it, they never fail to miss the point. I mean, the BBC ran a headline called Rutland Sea Dragon Dinosaur Dolphin. I mean, <laughs> what is that mess? Yes. I, Every large extinct um, reptile is a dinosaur. Surely the British know what an ichthyosaur is. You think so? But, I, mean, I mean, that, you know. that surely was, was just an error on the part of the writer, uh, which went... Um, which got overlooked when it was published, um, and uh, it was very swiftly changed thereafter, as I recall. It's probably just, it's probably just the sub-editor, to be honest. Um, I was yeah. going to say, I did wonder if this was thought to be a Temnodontosaurus spur <laughs> of some sort. Um, mm. But you mentioned that yeah. it, pro- it probably is. Obviously, we await the. Um, well, we have to wait the paper in ten years' time. But uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, it won't be quite so long. It might even be longer. You never know. I mean, it'll, it'll take a while to dig that thing out of the ground and uh, transport it back to the Natural History Museum where it'll be lost <laughs> yes. in a story. On to our Vintage Dinosaur Art book. Vintage Dinosaur Art. Dinosaurs and Other Archosaurs, written and illustrated by Peter Zalinger. Zalinger the Younger, as we will now call him. Uh... Mark, why don't you start, as you've written a few blog posts about this book previously? Well, of course, it's uh, Zellinger, son of Zellinger, um, the older Zellinger. We've already <laughs> yes, talked about his, uh, some of his work before, a certain famous mural. And it makes a very interesting comparison. Oh, yes. Peter Zellinger himself did illustrate a number of dinosaur books, and they themselves evolve over time from being... I mean, he was always a follower and he was always keenly interested in the dinosaur renaissance and keeping up with the latest um, discoveries. And indeed, the foreword of this book is written by John Ostrom. But his earlier books definitely show more pre-Renaissance tendencies in the art, as they would, whereas this is very much of the Renaissance. So very, very active dinosaurs, um, possibly somewhat too skinny in a lot of places, but nevertheless... Yeah, very lanky. Lanky, but maybe a bit too skinny. Not not to the extent of, um, obviously, Kishasaurs, but they are... Yeah, they're skinny. <laughs> All the same, it's... Very good for the time. <laughs> um, given that this came out, bear in mind, this came out a year after um, our beloved Normanpedia, and the dinosaurs in that were still rather 
for all their technical brilliance, um, they were still rather old school, often lumpen, tails dragging. Whereas in here, they're dynamic, yeah. thoroughly modern. We are we are just working John Civic into every conversation we have. <laughs> yes, of course yes. we are. <laughs> yes. Actually, we should have placed a bet on this. Like, I, I should have bet you I could work John Sibbing into every single podcast. Um, I could be rich by now, rich to tell you. We, we should have a, a Sibbing swear jar whenever somebody mentions him. Oh, no, that would never do. We'd be broke. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I prefer the idea of me placing a bet like I can work Sibbing into every single episode. I mean, uh, that's hardly difficult, is it? Because any of us could very easily mention John Sibbing at the top of a hat. Absolutely. Anyway, anyway, back to this book. Yes. Before you were rudely derailed. <laughs> One yes. thing that Niels has mentioned recently is that all dinosaurs in here are green and tan, or possibly tan and green. And that is true. People have speculated that it might be in order to place more emphasis on the dinosaur's form and anatomy rather than their coloration. Um, however, there is no explicit mention of that being the case in this book. They are just that way. Um, that may be the intention, um, yeah. for all I know, but it's not made explicit in the I book. can't imagine it not being the intention. You don't do this by mistake. Exactly. No. I'm inclined to think mm. that as well. Although, of course, they're not all green and tan. No, they're not. No. But even if uh, the intention wasn't necessarily to just uh, simplify the coloration um, in favor of showing uh, its, its form and anatomy, I also have a feeling that... Peter Salinger did this purposefully in any case, whether it, it intended as a kind of signature palette. Quite possibly. I find that more likely. It, yeah. it isn't implausible coloration. It isn't by any means. But the idea that it could be used as a signature strikes me as highly probable because uh, what else could, could be the reason for it? I very much doubt that Salinger is in any way uh, imaginatively deprived when it comes to uh, deciding on colors. I think this is more like a deliberate decision, whatever the reasoning was. The reason I, I think that is highly likely is because um, I do a similar thing myself. Um, in general, okay. as well as even in, in paleo art, a lot of my hatterosaurs, for example, will have the what I call the, the sort of dappled shadow um, uh, sort of markings. And because I tend to work less in colour, I'm less interested in exploring the, the colour possibilities and just really using that yeah, in almost uh, uh, as a signature, uh, and you, you you know you look at it and you recognise not just the style, but you you know that these sort of markings are from this artist. And I'm very much guessing that this is what what Peter Zellinger was doing. Yeah, I mean, given given his family, he probably thought a lot about art and art style, and what can I do to make myself stand out? Yeah. I think that's highly likely. It's true that if you see an illustration from this book, it's unmistakable, and partly because of that distinctive color palette i mean um where the dinosaurs aren't green and tan they're mostly just brown i mean there is a page of very brown ankylosaurs but also intriguingly um if you look at the apatosaurus slash sorry brackets brontosaurus <laughs> they are different again they're actually yes they are very distinctive yeah the adults are gray with these blue heads with sort of yellow a flash of yellow on the on the neck which is very interesting sort of hypothetical display feature. But then the juveniles mm. actually are kind of green and <laughs> tan stripey. But then this, yeah, yes. intriguing idea, intriguing little hypothetical um, age differentiation, um, change in the skin colors as they age. That's, that's rather nice. I mean, it's, it's very plausible. I mean, a, a baby sauropod would need more cryptic camouflage and 
you know, a full-grown sauropod would have little need for that. Right, yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. a sauropod, a full, an adult sauropod the size of a brontosaur would be, I think, try to camouflage yourself at that it's point. It's impossible would be pretty to miss. <laughs> yeah, it's just like enormous. Um, I will say that the anatomy in this book is generally obviously extremely well observed. The dinosaurs being a bit too skinny really helps you notice how closely they're actually following the skeletal anatomy of the animals. Yeah. Not necessarily as true with the brontosaurs, which seem to have very skinny necks. They almost have more diplodocus-like thin necks, but then it was a, it's always been a very common thing. And I wonder if you just didn't have access to, um, you know, three-dimensional SV references for that. to tell us that they have Toblerone necks. <laughs> yeah. He didn't have SV yes. power at the time. That's the only source of accurate information on the Patasornex. But, but in general, that aside, in general, most of the dinosaur anatomy in this book is extremely well observed, especially for the time. There are a few period sort of tropes, like there's a very short-tailed um, scolosaur uh, on one spread. It's a sort of late Cretaceous spread with uh, uh, Monoclonius, I think. Remember Monoclonius? Yeah, Monoclonius. Monoclonius. And yeah, there's a scholosaur there with a short tail, like half its tail's been cut off, which may be one of the very last occurrences of that outside of those really crap models that appear in um, various dinosaur yeah, parks. That that one, and um, on, on the Ankylosaur page, you have another scholosaurus with the same uh, problem. And there is the other nodosaur, which is called Acanthophilus. Yeah, and both of those are very much in the mold of, of Neve Parker slash Giovanni Caselli. And they really stick out a mile considering how modern the rest of the book really is. That aside, though, nice Triceratops, right? I really love that Triceratops. That's beautiful. That is one of my favorites for this book. Yes. And it helps that it has that really lovely lush backdrop as well with loads of plants, um, plants, plants, trees, plants, um, very lavishly illustrated. And just some very fine details. Yeah, I was scrolling through and that Triceratops really pops out. Mm. It looks very much like the modern one from Walter design. Don't you uh, Don't you agree? Like they have in Amazon? Yes. Yeah, it, that, it reminded me of that instantly. But of course, this predates that by quite some years. <laughs> I think, yeah, Walter yeah, would sure. have had I this mean, as a reference. The Germans than... would have based themselves off of this. Yeah, yeah. It would have been that but it has that lo- lovely semi-splayed stance that is really well observed. That is really something you only see if you pay attention to the fossils. That's right. Yes. Yeah. For, for a long time, people were... I mean, there's a lot of debate for it for years. Like, did it have upright forelimbs? Did it have sprawling forelimbs? I mean, famously, uh, Kish illustrated it with sprawling forelimbs. Or, and now we've settled on this sort of semi-crouched stance. So that is very ahead of its time. Um, clearly had some very good sources there. The whole thing is incredibly well observed. Uh, again, it's kind of trick wrapped, but then not too badly. Uh, it looks very, very imposing and massive, which Triceratops yes. really should, because yeah. the adults, adult Triceratops, it, it, is an absolutely colossal dinosaur. It's well, elephant mm, size. Speaking. What I appreciate about it too is that there's no rhino in there. It doesn't <laughs> look right. like a rhino. Oh, I see. No, no. Every time you see a Ceratopsid, it's always. They always put some rhino in there, right? Like, like yeah. it's, it's rhino lips, rhino noses, rhino nostrils, rhino feet. And this one has none of that. No. Yeah. Particularly good for this time is that the digits are quite well differentiated. It's not quite how we would do it now. This was 1986. And he just hasn't put elephant paws on it, is my point. Yeah. But so many from this time basically had these elephant or rhino paws stuck on them. Again, like you said, making them too mammalian. Whereas this is following the anatomy very well. And... I love certain superficial details on the skin as well. Like if you look at the um, the left forelimb, 
those uh, skin folds there, which clearly indicate the scaly skin. Yes, I skin. keep being drawn to those. Yeah, again, yeah. reptilian, not like a mammal. This is not. This hasn't got some kind of pachyderm hide on it. It's clearly got fine scales, and that's really, really nice. T-Rex is in here, and it's fine. <laughs> you know, it's not the worst T-Rex. It's, uh, it's, it's really very, very elegant T-Rex. It's a very elegant T-Rex, possibly too elegant, although again... Possibly too elegant. That, it was 1986. But then for it, but then for its time, yeah, we, we've fattened that up now. But apart from that, it's, it's yeah, for its time, this is exceptionally good, and it is way better than having a John Civic Godzilla T Rex from the Normanpedia. Sorry, I mentioned him again. Everyone, take a shot. <laughs> but just giving an idea of what contemporary artists were doing, this is way better than any of that. It's it's nice again, nicely proportioned, maybe a bit under muscled in places, and as obviously we make it fatter nowadays, probably, but. It's got a nice fat um, tail base as well for the time. Again, I don't know if you yes. noticed that. And also, in, um, in in a very novel idea, instead of having tan and green stripes, this one has green and tan spots. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Beautiful. There are some interesting hypotheses hinted at in here as well. Like uh, the Archaeopteryx seems to hint at Ostrom's insect net idea i was about to mention that as being my other favorite illustration actually so i'm glad you brought that up oh yeah it's it's a gorgeous illustration too by the way and it's actually it's hands form part of its wing rather than being some sort of separate add-on like they so often are and nati the hadrosaurs what do you think about the the hadrosaurs oh the hadrosaurs (laughs) yes the hadrosaurs are um, very kishy and i think they are extremely Kishian on the whole, although uh, I'm really quite partial to that uh, Anatosaurus, as is described there in the book. Um, it, uh, it's, it's very strange, but, but there are, I suppose, what you'd call a prefiguring, I suppose, of what we will later learn about them. Other than that, they are, they are as you say, mostly extremely Kishian and very, well, there is no other way to describe it other than extremely lean and uh, very near shrink-wrapped, even if their maybe ribs and skeletal structure aren't quite violently poking out. The the curious sort of webbed, which I suppose is a given at the time, webbed uh, limbs, not just the, the forefeet, but the back legs as well. I think, I think the limbs in this book, uh, on the whole, are quite weird. If we go back to that Cretaceous spread... Uh, with the Scolosaurus and the Monoclonius and the Gorgosaurus attacking. Oh, what yes. is going on with that Gorgosaurus's foot? Oh, it's like yes. making a fist with its foot the other way yeah, around. A a, a that is very strange. Yes, yeah, it's a, a, upward flipping, hyperflexing its toes. I mean, toes. if you're really going to get that nitpicking, Niels, God, you never get me being that nitpicky, honestly. <laughs> yeah, that's a slightly odd foot posture. Um, hey, it's a nice spread overall. I, th- I think odder than even that is the pterosaur that's just flown um, above the, uh, the Monoclonius. It's, yeah, it's extremely strange and an uncomfortable looking posture to be flying in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you think about the... Um... Yeah, artists basically before the 2010s had no idea what to do with, with pterosaurs, right? No, that's true. Yes. More or less. Um, sort of looking at, the, um, looking at the bigger picture, how much is this like Rudolph? Ah, I was so much hoping someone would ask that. <laughs> Not at all, I would say. I mean... Really. The, the dinosaurs are very different. They are extremely different. Well, and given how given how much Rudolf influenced other artists after him, it is kind of remarkable how little of him there is in here. 
Right. And uh, I, I don't know, of course we don't know, how much of that is a conscious decision on Peter's part, as much as the information he has of the way our perception of dinosaurs um, has evolved um, by this time. Um, yeah. But it is an interesting question and one that, w that we can never avoid when we talk of, um, how should we describe it, uh, artists with lineages, shall we say. It, it's, it's always a, a fascinating question and, and maybe an annoying one uh, <laughs> to, to a great degree um, <laughs> for the artists themselves. It's yeah. admirable how much um, Peter Zellinger, Zellinger, chose to move on with the science and obviously he's, he's allied himself with these um renaissance scientists um and is really paying a very close attention to the skeletal anatomy of the animals which rudolph arguably never did that much i mean in that sense he was like every paleo artist of the pre-renaissance times you know including all the greats knights um yeah but in, in the case of rudolph rudolph really came from the art side of things and not the science side Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is incorporating the science side of it a lot more, which just reflects how the science had moved on and the way that people thought about dinosaurs moved on. I mean, especially by '86, all the old sort of '60s and '70s tropes were dead in the water at this point, and it's this that then went on to influence this kind of thinking that then went on to influence that movie, and now we're kind of, uh, you know, to an extent stuck in that stage, <laughs> struggling to move on from it. Yeah, and I think in that sense. Um... It's great to have both. It's great to have both father and son. Exactly. And it's great to have that uh, Zalinger dynasty. <laughs> yes. Even That's if right. he could stand to look a bit deeper in his palace <laughs> for some other <laughs> What a bit of red has killed you. Our guest this month is Greer Stothers, an illustrator specializing in risograph prints who, in their words, loves natural history and horror and apparently birds. Greer has a background in evolutionary biology and their work has been displayed in museums and galleries in Canada, the United States, Germany and Indonesia. Their new book, Kaleidoscope of Dinosaurs and Prehistoric Life, is due to be published by Quarto very soon in February 2022. Greer, Happy New Year and welcome to Chasmosaurs. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful. All right, then. So first prerequisite question, as always, uh, as repetitive as it may now feel to regular listeners, but I nevertheless am always interested in an artist's path uh, to this field. So tell us, if you would, about your journey to paleontology. What got you interested? How did you get here? And what were your main influences and so forth? Oh, well, when I was uh, when I was very young, I was obsessed with dragons. Uh, so when my grand put on an episode of Walking with Dinosaurs, the episode that had the Ornithosaurus uh, walking along the beach, I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world because this was a real dragon that had lived on the same planet as us. Yes. Uh, and then a few years later, um, on a family museum trip to the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, they had an exhibit on feathered dinosaurs that included this life-sized model of Velociraptor uh, just with feathers coming off its forearms and its back and covering its body. And I thought, again, this is a dragon. This yes. is so cool. Um, so, yeah, that was that was my, uh, my little childhood passion. Uh, and it kind of fizzled out as I got older. I stopped thinking about dinosaurs uh, until my final year of college, where uh, we had to have this uh, big 
illustration project that uh, lasted the whole final year, and I was struggling to think of what mine would be. Uh, and coincidentally, I went to the cinema and watched Jurassic World. Yes. Uh, and came home and did a bit of reading on that and realized, hang on, like everyone is very angry about this movie because apparently the dinosaurs <laughs> in the movie do not look like how they would have looked in real life. Yes. So I, I went down this, yeah, this big rabbit hole on how these animals would have actually looked and how we've been fed the wrong images through the media for all these years. And that made me kind of angry and interested and excited. Uh, so I, I ended up making my final year's illustration project at Sheridan College, um, Paleoart, uh, illustrations of how the dinosaurs would have actually right. looked. Uh, and I based the style on James John Audubon. Oh, fantastic. So that was, uh, that was how I, yeah, that was how I, uh, came back to dinosaurs. And it, since then it has not left me. I have not left the rabbit hole of how dinosaurs really looked. I'm still, uh, deep in it. Yes. That's fantastic. Tell us about, um, your work at the ROM and, and your meeting with, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. uh, with Danielle. I also had the chance to, uh, do a research project at the Royal Ontario Museum, uh, working with hadrosaur vertebrae and oh, doing wonderful. the life reconstruction of the owner of those vertebrae. Yeah, it was um, very revealing, like showing how paleontologists actually work, how they actually come about getting this information. Yes. Uh, and I also had the chance to work in the same lab as Daniel Dufault, who's the resident illustrator at the Royal Ontario Museum's Paleo Lab. Oh, that's uh, wonderful. Yeah, and it was... Um, yeah, it was very inspirational seeing the work that she was doing because she was illustrating animals that nobody had ever seen before. Uh, and she was giving them like a presence and a life. It was very, very cool to watch. That's fantastic. Danielle is a wonderful artist. And uh, as it happens, um, she and I actually um, spoke to, to Dave Hone and uh, Izzy Lawrence on their um, Terrible Lizards podcast uh, only a few months ago. So that, that's fantastic. Uh, sometimes uh, the paleosphere really is a, a small world. It is. It is a very small world. And uh, Danielle Dufault is such a warm and welcoming person. Yes. So I'm very excited to hear your interview with her. That's wonderful. Yes, she really is. And uh, I, I hinted at in the introduction that uh, you had uh, a background in, in evolutionary biology. And was it more than this um, project that you had uh, working, uh, reconstructing the hadrosaur? Or oh, uh, can you tell us more about that? Of course. So uh, I went back to school for a while. I was uh, interested in taking a master's of evolutionary biology. Uh, so I went to the University of Toronto, and for three years, I did non-degree uh, courses on evolutionary biology right. at the same time as working as a freelance illustrator. And that process of uh, doing the research project, as much as I loved the opportunity and being able to like see the room full of fossils at the ROM that they keep there and talk with everyone and learn how everyone does their specific jobs, I found it all fascinating and lovely, but the research aspect was not for me. Right. <laughs> so that, uh, that kind of informed my um, uh, decision to maybe just stick to the illustration part that uh, was still lighting a fire. Yes. In no, I completely understand that. I think for a, for a lot of artists, or I, I shouldn't speak for others, but certainly for my part, um, I think that's it's a very familiar sentiment in that I probably couldn't work as a researcher 
but uh, but the whole uh, having your art be informed by science is is a great passion for me, and uh, so mm-hmm. I I completely understand that. Yeah, no, I would much rather read the research of other people than do the research. Myself. That's right. Yes, <laughs> so, exactly. That's a, yeah. yeah, I completely appreciate that. And also, I, I do just want to say um, how how refreshing it is to hear you talk about uh, walking with dinosaurs uh, as being one of your earlier influences, because we do tend to get a lot of mention of a certain other media giant from our other guests even though you did come to that one eventually. Oh, yeah. Jurassic Park was <laughs> That's um, right. a juggernaut, I can assume. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I just, it's so strange. I never liked the scaled appearance of dinosaurs very much. It's only when I found out they had feathers that I uh, I got very interested. And I still kind of shun the scaled dinosaurs like hadrosaurs. Oh. <laughs> I just like, I'm sorry, I like birds. They're so cool. <laughs> I understand. But but on that note, though, you did come to the sort of the feathered appearance of dinosaurs uh, relatively late, given that uh, your interest sort of waned and then you returned to paleontology and then rediscovered um, through a very late uh, piece of media. So you, you came to, to the feathered appearance fairly late in, in the grand scheme of things. That's right. It was... Um... I think that's why it struck me so hard, that realization of, oh, my gosh, like, this thing is not how I believed it to be. Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, I think, when I was uh, about 20 that I finally uh, had that happen. Yes. But how refreshing that you then were able to embrace it as wholeheartedly as you have, because even now we struggle to, to create, well... I wouldn't say create a paradigm shift because the paradigm shift already took place, but uh, we struggled for for this shift to be accepted in so many people, uh, who, despite their love of dinosaurs. So uh, it, it's great to hear that uh, whatever the lateness of your arrival to this new appearance, uh, you took to it mm-hmm. as a duck to water. That's right. It also uh, gave me a much enhanced appreciation of uh, birds. And it's part of the reason I now have a little chicken flock in my backyard. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> all right, then. Uh, thank you. Uh, all right. So the other important question then is your development as an artist. Um, but before we come on to the question of style, I do want to ask about your chosen medium. Uh, you specialize in risograph prints, uh, something which I must confess I'm not very familiar with at all. So could you explain to us um, what is a risograph print? Uh, am I right in understanding that it was invented as a way to mechanically replicate the effects of screen printing, uh, but much more quickly and cost-effectively? Oh, that's completely right, yeah. It's um, very much like screen printing. I think the major difference in appearance is that the inks are more translucent. Right. So they will layer on top of each other into new colors more easily. Uh, and then the other major aesthetic difference is that... Um, the ink that is pushed through the stencils comes out uh, through these little holes that have been pricked. So it gives the final appearance of a risograph print a bit of a pointillistic um, effect. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's it's um, definitely like a very interesting process. Uh, to make a risograph, uh, the stencils you send to the printer um, are black and white, uh, and you have one for every layer of ink. So uh, on say this is like a a red layer, all the areas that you want to be red, Um, the areas that are black in your stencil will be punched through 100% of the way. And so you'll get a fat blob of ink going through there. 
Uh, and then the areas that are white will have no holes punched in them whatsoever, so they'll stay white. And then the areas that are between black and white, the gray areas, will have uh, a different amount of holes punched in it according to the intensity of the gray, whether it's dark or light. Right. That's how you create uh, colors that you don't really have inks for in a risograph. So if I'm working with uh, blue and yellow, I don't have a green ink, but I still want green to be everywhere in my print. So I'll have to layer like uh, a spot where I want 40% of the yellow ink to come through and 30% of the blue ink. And that will create this beautiful green. Yes. Uh, and it's it's a very fun guessing game. Yes. <laughs> trying to make all these colors appear. And um, part of the beauty of it is you never know how it's going to look until it actually prints. So you're making all these kind of theories of, okay, this will mix with this this way and this color will be here probably. But you don't actually know the intensity and the mixing of everything right. until it actually prints. So you get this uh, this grand reveal that's quite exciting. Right, I see. So uh, ultimately, it's, it's almost, well, it, it's still a fairly traditional way of creating prints, um, despite it's, it's uh, part of the mechanical process. Um, that's really fascinating because you don't, you don't, as you say, you don't always know quite what it's going to look like until you see it at the end. Yeah, that's completely right. And then you get all the, um, the, the same errors of uh, traditional artwork where uh, in a print, like sometimes the colors will not align perfectly. So like yes. the red will be offset and everything will have almost like a 3D look to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I find that so fun. I love the edges. I love where like the ink is pooled. I love where um, colors have not aligned perfectly. It gives it such a unique handmade look. Yes. Yeah. Yes, of course. I, I love all of that. Mm -hmm. I'm really fond of the, the artifacts that you get in, in all the various um, printmaking methods. I really enjoy that. I also uh, love that you can make a risograph in several different ways because all that you really require is a black and white digital stencil for each of the inks, but you can arrive at that stencil kind of any which way. So you could turn like a photograph into a risograph print by isolating the colors from one another and doing that fun oh, digitizing process. Uh -huh. You could, uh, you could uh, start off traditionally and just kind of either convert uh, your crayons or paints or anything into black and white for the stencil or start off just doing black and white uh, and knowing that it will turn into a colorful ink when it actually gets printed. Or you could do what I do, which is digitally paint in different layers oh, and have right. them like tinted that color so that you actually know how things are going to turn out. Uh, and then, yeah, convert it all to black and white and hope for the best. I see. It's it's fun having all these paths coming toward making the same thing in the end. Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me that you could incorporate it um, with photography uh, to create a, a print effect. Um, but but yeah, of course that makes sense. Uh, I mean, w what's your process then? You you indicated that you you draw digitally uh, to create the um, the stencils for the risographs. But is it possible to to do so traditionally? Mm, oh, completely, completely. Right. So uh, I've also. Um, I've also done some hybrid work uh, where I do the line art uh, traditionally and then I color it in digitally and I just convert everything to black and white for the stencils and have it printed as a risograph. Or sometimes I do pure digital. It's as long as like the stencil or the stencil is digital, you can come at it whichever way you want, right. which is uh, right. very freeing. Like it's a, yeah, it's a very free 
mode of expression. Gosh, that sounds really intriguing. I'm almost tempted to try it myself. Oh, you absolutely should. <laughs> All right, then. So uh, what was it that, that made you choose um, this method? So why risographs for you? Was there a kind of Damascene moment or was it a more organic, gradual process of discovery? I mentioned that I'd um, gone back to university to uh, study evolutionary biology, yeah. which was uh, very fun. Um, but uh, at the, there was also a little bit of a familial pressure behind that because uh, I just uh, graduated from um, Sheridan College with a four-year degree in illustration, and my parents thought that that was not a proper education, oh, right. <laughs> and that I should go off and get something more sensible. Oh, yes, that uh, sounds familiar. So, um, yeah, part of what made me hold to my guns and follow my gut feeling was uh, finding a bunch of Sybil Andrew lino cuts around this, that same time, uh, and I. I absolutely loved like her abstracted shapes and the way she simplified colors. She uh, was this uh, English Canadian artist uh, in the uh, early 20th century who did all these agricultural scenes and horse racing and just farmers like working the fields. Uh, and it was very, um, a lot of bold, strange abstraction. And uh, so when I, when I kind of discovered Rizograph, I, I, took all that passion I'd felt about Sybil Andrews' lino cuts, and I thought, okay, I can make these kind of bold, almost abstracted prints of my own. I can, I can like, take the passion I'm feeling from looking at her stuff and make say, the same sort of stuff that will make other people feel the same way, possibly. Yes, yes. Well, well you've already anticipated my next question, then, which is uh, about your style. Um, if I were to describe it, I would say that your approach is not dissimilar to uh, two of our recent guests, um, Sharon Wegner-Larsen and, and Raven Amos, in that, um, as you said, it's it's very graphically led with an emphasis on strong line and flat colors and shapes. And, and obviously much of this is in correspondence with your chosen medium of risographs. But um, did, uh, did the process of creating risographs inform your style? Or was it the other way around? Or were there other influences as well, aside from Sybil Andrews? I think that um, the process of making risographs definitely solidified my style because it um, it favors uh, more segregated color areas and less blending. Right. Um, but I definitely had my, my style influenced by a lot of other factors growing up, in particular uh, the group of seven, so they were um, a bunch of Canadian landscape artists that were active in the 1920s to the 1930s. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, like one of their members, Lauren Harris, um, he started off with a style similar to the rest of the group. Um, these kind of very lonely looking trees being blown in the wind in front of lakes and all that. Yes. But he transitioned to something a bit more abstracted and geometric and strange as time went on. Like he has all these um, paintings of mountains with strong, strong light coming down off them. And they almost just look like surrealist, like geometric cubism. They don't, they don't, they stop looking like landscapes. And I, I love the strangeness of that. And right. The kind of, um, yeah, the strong shapes in that. So that, uh, that definitely informs the landscapes that I include in my paleo art. I have a lot of people like asking, okay, are those trees or are those mountains? <laughs> yes. So, that's where I get that from. Right, I see. 
your mentioning actually of uh, strong lighting and strong geometric shapes and, and also the period um, that, uh, that these artists are working in uh, suddenly put me in mind of, of Avind Earl, um, whom you might know as uh, one of the earliest concept artists working for Disney, um, uh, one of the, the, the grandmasters, as I like to call them, uh, of Disney. Um, uh, Avind worked in particular for uh, Sleeping yeah. Beauty. I absolutely love uh, his, uh, his work, like just the, the strong geometric shapes are just so appealing to yes. me. I really, really love it. Yes, I can understand that. I can see that. Yeah, it, it's really refreshing to me um, to hear of a paleo artist uh, telling about their influences outside of the paleo realm. Um, influences from, let's let's call it the the, the greater uh, art history timeline. Um, it's it's. I love hearing about artists who weren't born and bred in paleo. Um, it's yeah. I, I feel a, a kindred spirit in this way. But um, in, in strictly paleo art terms, are there any uh, more, more strictly uh, paleo artists who had influenced you? Yeah, of course. There was a, a rabbit hole that I went down after the whole Jurassic World episode where I uh, found out, you know, feathers were on Velociraptor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of that rabbit hole was uh, discovering all yesterdays which is, uh, I, I know you definitely know about it, but just describing it to anyone else who, who might not be aware. Yeah, of course. It's, uh, this book about the soft tissue appearance of dinosaurs, how it was probably quite different from what we see in traditional paleo art, how traditional dinosaurs are kind of mummified and often have the wrong integument, so yeah. scales instead of feathers, and how, how silly that appearance would look if we gave it to, like, a modern animal. Like, if we... Uh, shrink-wrapped a dog and gave it scales, (laughs) how different it would look from an actual dog. So the All Yesterday's movement was definitely very influential to me early on. You'll see a lot of my earlier paleo art has uh, a lot of like loose dangling soft tissue and rainbow colors, (laughs) but I'm still still kind of trying to wean myself off of to get to a more naturalistic approach, but definitely that was what made me excited back then. Uh, and then uh, John Conway, in particular, from the All Yesterdays, I uh, I am very fond of his work. It's more painterly and uh, yes. more kind of like I don't want to say stylized, but just kind of has an older feeling to it that I really enjoy. Mm. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, out of the um, other artists, I would say Emily Willoughby. She's not really connected to All Yesterdays, but she was very influential online about the appearance of feathered theropods. That's right. Uh, her um, her illustration of Deinonychus, like perched on a branch like a golden eagle, was huge online, and I think it, it influenced a lot of people to reconsider the appearance of this animal and realize like it could still be beautiful with this this new look. Yes, of course. So yeah, I found them very influential. Yeah, and you couldn't have chosen better artists uh, to 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 influence you immediately as you came back to paleo than Emily Willoughby and, and John Conway. Um, I'm, I'm also actually just making another connection here because I often liken John Conway's paintings to uh, lithographs, uh, which is a printmaking technique. And although John uh, uh, paints them digitally, there is still nevertheless, as you said, that almost uh, stylized uh, lithographic appearance to his work, um, which links back to... to uh, 
uh, a an almost print like appearance. Um, and of course, you specialize in risograph prints, and, and I just find that there's another connection there. Oh, completely. Yeah, his work, his, the style of his work definitely appeals to me. Uh, I know like a lot of paleo art is this kind of photorealistic hyperrealism. Uh, and I do find that really cool for giving like almost a photograph of what the past might have looked yes. like. But I, I do find myself uh, more drawn towards the more painterly or old type or graphic uh, pieces of paleo art. Oh, absolutely. And uh, that I completely uh, sympathize with. I think um, if chasmosaurs are well known for anything, it's that we love to champion uh, as broad and as varied uh, a selection of styles and approaches to paleo art as possible. And uh, not at all that we dislike uh, uh, realistic uh, dinosaur art, paleo art. Um, we can admire and love that in every way possible. But, but uh, it's always such a pleasure uh, to me, especially, to see artists uh, who aren't interested in replicating a photograph. Um, so it's, it's always such a pleasure to hear other artists uh, doing this and speaking about this kind of work. Let's talk about your new book. Uh, kaleidoscope of dinosaurs and prehistoric life. Uh, don't forget the other non-dinosaur and prehistoric life. Um, you'd uh, previously published a book with a similar title, um, Kaleidoscope of Creatures, which deals with extant animals. And I'm assuming that this uh, new one is a kind of follow-up in the series and deals with, uh, as the title suggests, the life appearance of dinosaurs. Um, so can you tell us everything you could about it? Oh, totally. So the first book in the series, Kaleidoscope of Creatures, I was brought on as an illustrator. Uh, and then the, the second book um, was originally supposed to be about uh, worldwide cultures, uh, just kind of like human clothing, that sort of stuff. Right. Uh, and I suggested, hey, uh, what if instead of that, it's about dinosaurs and you let me write it? <laughs> and <laughs> yes. for some reason, they said yes and let me do that. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, I got to be the uh, the author on the I got to be the author on the second book, and uh, I got to kind of dump out all the things that I'd been obsessing about for the yes. past little while. So the first, yeah, the first section of it is all about um, how we know the coloration of fossilized animals. So it deals mainly with Cretaceous era animals and is uh, talks a lot about uh, melanosomes. So <clears throat> melanosomes are little guys in the feathers and the skin that uh, you can look at the shape of and be like, okay, that probably created the color black. That probably created a reddish brown. That probably created white. Yes. Uh, and then you can also find structural, uh, structural colors in the uh, feathers and skin as well. Uh, like, for instance, uh, iridescence. It kind of has this uh, needle-like appearance when you look at it under the microscope. Right. So, yeah, I, I talk about how you how we know the colorations of these animals and, and then for all the animals that we don't know the colorations of, how we can make educated guesses because a lot of the time um, the animal's lifestyle, like where it lives, how it has to camouflage, whether it hunts or is hunted, those all like play a big impact on how it's colored. So there's a lot of... Um, detailing on how to make these educated guesses and like what we do when we don't know the color. Yeah. And then uh, after the Cretaceous segment of the book, it goes on to 
more modern animals. So there's a page on mummified animals uh, from the Ice Age. Right. So in this case, like we can tell the colorations of these animals because we actually have their physical bodies. Yes. And in the case of mammoths, like they're well preserved enough that we can do genetic testing on them. So we were able to find out that uh, mammoth hair has the same kind of range of colors as human hairs in terms of being like anywhere from brown to blonde to, to red. Yes. Which is pretty impressive. Uh, and then, yeah, and then uh, moving on to the animals that uh, did not get preserved physically in the ice, we can still kind of guess at their colorations through rock art. Because yes. in a lot of cases, uh, even though they're extinct now, humans still lived beside them at some point and made art of them that has been preserved. So we have all these like beautiful illustrations either carved or painted into rock all over the world of animals that are long gone today. Yes. And then, uh, yeah, moving past that era to the even closer to present, we have Victorian era prints and paintings of... Uh, animals that are more recently extinct like the dodo yes or uh like the barbary lion and uh yeah that that gives us an idea of like how they were colored uh and then the last page is all about how to possibly prevent extinction in the future and so i get to rant about uh how people should keep their cats indoors <laughs> which is very fun <laughs> yes uh and yeah that's the that's the book oh, it sounds wonderful oh thank you so much it sounds as though you've covered a pretty broad range of how we can make inferences about uh, about prehistoric uh, life appearance, actually, because you, you covered uh, things like uh, melanosomes and uh, structural color and uh, cave art uh, and mummies and even, um, which I don't tend to see often, actually, in, in books of this nature, even recent depictions uh, as in uh, Victorian uh, depictions and taxidermy and so forth. Um, so that's it's really good to see that included as well. It sounds to me like it's it's a pretty good primer for uh, for children interested in this. Oh, for sure. So yeah, it's uh, it's for the age, age ranges of uh, about 8 to 11. So um, a lot of the meteor science has been kind of simplified down to something kids could grasp. Oh, yes. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a great introduction to any kid that's uh, fascinated by dinosaurs. Yeah, and and you mentioned, of course, that you also wrote this one yourself. Um, I always find writing for children extremely difficult because um, you need to strike uh, just that right balance between uh, being accessible and simplified, but not simplistic and not uh, patronizing. Um, was that a particular challenge for oh, you? Oh, yeah, that was a huge challenge. I had a lot of um, struggle with my editor because, uh, yeah, a lot of the time uh, he would kind of replace my words that were too large and too niche oh, yes. and too scientific <laughs> with more simplified language for a child to understand. But in replacing those like big scientific words, you completely change the meaning of the sentence that's and you right. make it something that's suddenly unscientific. Yeah. So I had to really do a bit of a tug of war with him to make it something that kids could understand, but also something that was specific enough to be still scientific. So that, there was a, a lot of, um, for instance, there's a big battle over the word pigment. Oh, yes. <laughs> because it's not in a normal child's vocabulary right. necessarily, but I just can't think of a word that could or a series of words that are more simplified layman's language that could stand in for pigment like there is 
it's just pigment. Right. So yeah. that's that was kind of the the big struggle with this. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I see that. I mean, th there really isn't any other alternative to the word pigment because that's what you're, you know, that's what the structure mm. is called. That, uh, and and often yeah. in in these cases, um, you cannot avoid using uh, specialist language because the as you said, you would change the meaning entirely. And sometimes it's just a matter of learning the vocabulary um, as much as we want it to be accessible. Mm -hmm. We still, you know, sometimes it's necessary. Yeah, so uh, I did get away with um, keeping some of the big words in there. So uh, one of the things I fought for was Ice Age megafauna. Oh, yes. So now you, you get to read that in the book instead of uh, big animals that lived in the Ice Age. <laughs> yes. I, was, I was really... Uh, adamant about that yeah <laughs> that's going to be going to become a useful uh, part of the vocabulary later on because megafauna is is extremely yeah. important in ecological terms as a word so yeah i i think that's well worth fighting for yeah and then kids love using these big words once they learn them yeah it's oh, like yes. a, a fun thing to show up. so <laughs> hopefully i give these eight-year-olds something to uh to talk about with their parents exactly <laughs> And in the process, you've already also given your editor uh, a new set of vocabulary, I'm quite sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I think he's probably got a brain full of dinosaur now. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. All right, then. So what next for you? Have you anything else in the pipeline? Are you working on another book or any other project at the moment? Oh, yes, I actually am. Uh, so... The last two years, I've done like a book a year. Uh, so in 2020, the first half of that year was spent making Kaleidoscope of Creatures. In uh, 2021, uh, first half of that year was spent making Kaleidoscope of Dinosaurs and Prehistoric Life. And now in 2022, I would like to make a third book. Yeah. Um, and this one will not be uh, published by anybody but myself. Uh -huh. So it'll be a, a self-published visual novel. And it's actually not going to be about dinosaurs, though it will deal with a lot of the um, same themes I've been interested in, like right. extinction and species and evolution. So, yeah, it'll be um, uh, a visual novel about the preservation of a subspecies of fox and like all the different oh, routes wow. that you could take, whether it's like hybridization with uh, a more common species or preservation in captivity or extinction or if they there's like found to be some sort of um capitalistic use for them of course how that uh, could change the history of the species so yeah it'll be um a multi-ending visual novel and uh yeah i'm quite excited about uh about that oh wow and how uh, it's a novel of course but how how what is the scale of this project? It sounds almost ambitious to me. Oh, yeah. Well, it's actually going to be um, less ambitious than the last two books oh. because it's in a slightly different style. That's uh, Yeah, so it, the, the last couple books have all been um, risograph with uh, uh, realism and a lot of kind of detail work. Yes. Whereas um, in this story, I want to kind of make it a lot easier for myself oh, yes. uh, and do it in kind of traditional just kind of sloppy traditional pen uh and then just add the colors digitally so i've done that before and right. it's, it's so much faster uh like it, it looks looser but it's it's fun and easy so i i think for um just kind of an ambitious project like this you need to 
to pare back some aspects oh, to make it realistic. <laughs> yes. So that's that's how I'm managing this one. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. And also, I think I think it would uh, a, a, a more suitable approach to a visual novel actually, um, a, a looser style. Mm-hmm. I think works very well. Yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah, I have a uh, a Patreon up where I've um, put all the steps of this month I'll be working on this. This month I'll be working on this. Oh, so wonderful. for January, it's uh, the concept art. Yeah, so I've been working on all these um, concept art, uh, loose sketches of different fox species, and I'll be uploading that at the end of January. I'm very excited to see everyone's reaction to it. Oh, fantastic. So uh, please send us your uh, Patreon link, and we will include that in the in the show notes as well. That'll be wonderful. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. Yes. Well, that, that all sounds wonderful, Gria. Um, well... It's uh, it's been such a pleasure, and uh, I hope the book does immensely well. I am definitely going to put it on my list, and uh, hopefully uh, our listeners will be just as eager for it as as we are. Greer, you have all our best wishes from the Casmosaurus team, uh, onwards and upwards, as we say. And uh, thank you again so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. You've been so kind, and I'm so excited for people to see the book in February. Oh, I, yes. I cannot wait. Oh, yes, that's wonderful. Thank you. So, yeah, do, do we need to do, like, an outro thingy? Like, thank you for listening. Yeah, we need to do, like, an okay. outro thingy. Outro thingy. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Cosmosaurs, the podcast. The audio supplement to the Love in the Time of Cosmosaurs blog. Oh, yeah, I, I do miss Alan Rickman, I have to say. Uh, I don't play villains. I play very interesting people. <laughs> uh, I just want to wish our listeners a happy new year, by the way. Um, as late as it is in the month, I do believe that the whole of January is perfectly legitimate for wishing uh, for wishing anyone a happy new year. Not to mention uh, the Lunar New Year coming up very soon. So a happy new year to all our listeners. Yes, and thank, thank you. you very much. Happy new year to everybody. There is one more thing that we should bring up. On behalf of our blogmaster, David Orr, who, together with his wife, Jenny, has written a book a few years ago called Mammoth is Mopey. That's right. Which is about to have a second edition. Yes. So watch this space. I'm sure we will have some news to share on that front soon. We will indeed. So yeah, Mammoth is Mopey, the uh, dinosaur alphabet book for kids or adults or however old you are. It's probably going Everybody. to be fun. In uh, any case, yes. that's that's having a second edition soon, so... We'll uh, probably share the news once it's. I think uh, you'll find we'll have something to share. I think you'll find it's a prehistoric animal alphabet book, Niels. It's mammoths in the title. Yes, Niels. dinosaurs. It's not just a dinosaur. <laughs> alphabet not the prehistoric book, animals. Niels. <laughs> How dare you, Niels? I'm watching you. you know. And nobody ever remembers the other non-dinosaurian prehistoric creatures. Also, don't confuse this one with Steve White's, because if you give Steve White's book to children, you might. They would love. Most kids would love that book. It's so gruesome and nasty. I would. I would absolutely adore that. Or I was about to say, or yeah, or or, <laughs> or some very creative artistic endeavors to follow. I dare say. Do give Steve White's violent book to kids. <laughs> <laughs> I absolve myself of all responsibility. Do it. <laughs> I, I have not influenced you to give a violent book to children. So there you go. It's not that bad. <laughs> I was kidding. I think the worst one is, um, is a dromaeosaur infested by lice. That, that just makes me itch, Oh, yeah. That that's one. painful. That's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> very visceral. Well, there's none of that in Mammoth is Mopey. No, mammoths. No, you don't have any, um... There you go. We've come full circle. We have. Aren't we great? Yes. I think we are. Well, uh, 
<laughs> I think that about concludes our 14th episode. I, I think I think yes. we nailed it. I think we did great. We yeah. also great. We also great. Everybody loves us. We so great. for one last time, uh, a happy new year, everybody. We'll see you next month and goodbye. Happy new year again. Happy new year and thank you. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. You can find all the images and links we discussed today on the podcast show notes on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs and on Twitter at Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, you can leave us a good review on your favorite podcasting platform or consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash LITC. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bandcamp.com slash bronzewing. Stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and we hope to see you again soon.